some of the most impressive people that I have ever met in my life. And for some of you, um, this is the same, same thing uh, is true for you. It has been people who are, um, I don't know, the best way I can describe them is in spite of people, right? In spite of, that means they've been going through difficult circumstances. Um, and man, there's so many possible arenas of circumstances that you can choose. Um, They might be going through a tough financial time, may have gotten bad health diagnosis, um, family things going wrong, perhaps going through a divorce. But somehow in the middle of all of these things that are going wrong and these circumstances that are just swirling around, their confidence in God seems unshakable. Um, and, And they still have joy and they still have peace. And when you look at it, it's kind of unexplainable. Because a normal person in those circumstances that's approaching them the same way that everybody would approach the circumstances shouldn't be having joy and peace because life is in turmoil around them and that should be reflected within their inner self, that feeling, that, that turmoil. But, but they trust God. And, and those stories are at the same time, to me, those stories are both inspiring um, and really terrifying. Um, inspiring because like, man, like if they can do it, I can do it. And, you know, I want to be able to trust God that way. Terrifying in the, man, I hope I never have to be in that situation and try and make it through that and still keep my trust in God. But for some of you, perhaps it's your interactions with a person just like that um, that maybe led you to faith in the first place, that caused you to pause and take a second look and wonder what it was that was different about that person. Now, as we said last week, and we spent a lot of time kind of establishing this idea that, that Christianity is not about just believing. You know, you, you can't really just tell somebody to believe something, right? They kind of believe it or they don't believe it. And there may be things that, you know, change their mind and new information and can come to a point of belief on something. But you can't just say believe because that would be dishonest if they said, okay, I believe. You know, that, that's not how that works. And it's not just about blind faith. You're like, well, I don't know. I can't answer any of the questions, but I'm just going to have faith and I'm just going to go on. It, it wasn't like that. Um, you know, John, Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, all, all, all of the rest of them, they didn't follow Jesus just based on faith, right? Because faith wouldn't have got them through everything that they went through. They followed Jesus because of what they actually saw and actually heard. And if you look at the process of the disciples over the, the, the New Testament, over the Gospels, I mean, they would be like, oh, we're on board. And then something would happen. Oh, we're not on board anymore. And then something would happen like, oh, our faith is back. And then something else. And they're like, oh, no. And they were up and down and up and down and up and down because of the things they were experiencing. But then once they saw a resurrected Jesus, like, bam, like, they believed. There's no shaking that after that. And they followed because of what they actually saw. And John, as he's writing his gospels and even his letters towards the, that are included towards the end of the New Testament, John encourages, uh, encourages his readers to follow Jesus based on what he, John, had seen and heard. And he did his best to write the story, to write his experience in such a way that it would convince or help be a piece of a person coming to believe. Here's how he stated his entire goal. In 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning. And the beginning when he's writing here is not the beginning, Genesis, the beginning. It's the beginning of when Jesus showed up. When he showed up and he started making these outrageous claims 
and started doing these outrageous things. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. And this was his way of saying, listen, after the resurrection, like we're, you know, we didn't just, we didn't just chalk it up to like, oh man, did we just see a ghost? <laughs> like, oh man, did we, is our meal last night really not sitting with, uh, <laughs> with us? And we're kind of hallucinating now. No, they're like, no, we touched. Like he was there. He was real. It happened. And this we proclaim concerning the word of life, that the life appeared, which I think is John's way of saying like, listen, I'm just a simple man. My father was a fisherman. That's what we did. I was a fisherman. And then Jesus came along and just changed everything. And all I know is this, and you can't ask me a whole lot of difficult questions about a lot of the surrounding stuff because I don't know. I don't have it figured out. But what I know is this, is that as a Jewish boy, I believed in God. I believed in Yahweh, that invisible, mysterious, don't ask any questions, just follow and do what's said type of God. That God came to earth as a person and I met him. He says, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And John was the last of his group who was left living. Everyone else um, had died. They were not natural deaths. They were not deaths you and I would like to experience. But he decided as he got to the end of his life, I have got to document my story. But here's the most important aspect of all of John's writings is that John was not content to just tell his story. He wasn't content to just put it out there as something for people to read and be entertained by. He had an agenda. And he tells us flat out, here's my agenda. John chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, and this book being the one he was writing at the moment. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by belief, you may have life in his name. And many times throughout John's gospel, he uses the term, the term eternal life. But what he makes very clear is he's not saying eternal life that starts at death and then whatever it is that comes next. John was very clear that, no, when I'm talking about life and eternal life, it starts now, here, with where you are, with what you're doing, with who you are interacting with. And John kind of lays out the sequence of events within his story. He lays out the events that led him to follow Jesus. And he's hoping that that series of events, as you go through, and as we go through this together over the next several weeks, he was hoping that that would lead people to follow Jesus. So today we're, we're going to look at the second event, or what we like to call miracles, that John recorded within his Gospels. Now last week, Jesus showed up at a wedding right? And they run out of wine. And his mom asks him to fix it. And Jesus responds with, I have not come to save weddings. I've come to save man. And his mom just smirks and walks away. And Jesus saved the wedding, <laughs> which is how all good interactions between parents and children should go. <laughs> and then after this, Jesus heads from Galilee. He was, Galilee is way up north in Israel. And he he heads down to Jerusalem. 
to celebrate Passover with his disciples. Now, every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, um, he was in danger. Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, he got in trouble. He said things and he did things. And Jerusalem was the center of um, the center of the power of the Jewish faith. That was where the temple was in Israel. And so he would go in and it was almost as if, um, if you watch the pattern of what Jesus would do, it's he would be out in Galilee or over, um, you know, over towards Samaria. And then he'd come into Jerusalem and he'd kind of poke the hornet's nest, right? And then when things got too dangerous, he'd back back out and like go back up to, you know, up to Galilee and then Cana and these areas. And then he'd come back down into Jerusalem and stir things up again, right? And get going and it was really man, it was really quite interesting to see how he would do that and just keep religious people on edge. And so sometimes he only stayed for a short bit. And those who knew him were always kind of on edge and worried when Jesus was going to Jerusalem because he would, he would say and do these strange things, sometimes these offensive things. And they never knew when it would finally catch up to him and that would be the end that the religious leaders would have had enough and they come down on him. So on this trip, sure enough, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he is so offended by what he sees going on in the temple as he's watching merchants with dishonest scales ripping people off, as he sees people who are selling animals for sacrifice that do not meet the standard of the sacrificial animals. And because they know they're the only game in town are charging exorbitant prices and ripping people off and enriching themselves on the process of the Jewish people worshiping their God. He becomes extremely angry and he kicks everybody out. He cleans house. He says, I will not have this here. And he drove everyone out of the temple and it was this huge scene and his followers were nervous right? Oh my goodness. And then the religious leaders, they show up when all this is going, because it was in the temple. They weren't too far away. And they show up and, and they ask an amazing question. They do not show up and ask, what are you doing? That would probably be my first response. If somebody came in here and like started tearing stuff up, I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, what's happening? What are you trying to accomplish here? That wasn't their question. When they showed up with Jesus, their question was, who do you think you are? Which is a way better question than what I would ask. Because it goes beyond just what is happening. It goes to the question of authority and who Jesus is, right? And then he answers their question and he tells them. And John says, people saw him do these things. And from what they saw, people there in Jerusalem, people who were in the temple at the time, people who witnessed the interaction between him and the Pharisees, what they saw convinced them and they believed in Jesus, right? So then Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees. And this is where the whole phrase where Jesus is talking is like, well, if you want to be saved, you've got to be born again. And that's where that whole phrase that, that we use within uh, Christian language and culture of being saved, that born again. And Jesus says that. And Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? And Jesus is like, what do you mean? What do I mean? You're one of the religious leaders. You should know. You figure it out. So he has this conversation and just more things that the disciples and the people around are listening to. 
And it's just adding to what they are seeing in that, that body of evidence that Jesus is doing. And it was a complete paradigm shift, both for Nicodemus in that conversation and for his disciples who were watching. So then the group leaves Jerusalem. They start headed back to Galilee. And they go, they go near Samaria, which is a place that Jewish people completely avoided. And as they're walking back, he runs into a well in the middle of nowhere. And there's a woman there drawing water. And the disciples had been sent into town and Jesus has this conversation with this woman. And it's an unusual conversation, both in context and the fact that it was even happening. And so he has this conversation and through this conversation, he says things that this woman hears and it convinces her, this guy's, he's the thing. He's what we've been waiting on. And she goes in and she tells everyone in town, listen to what I just experienced and everybody believed. Then they finally make it back up to Galilee. And that's where we pick up our story, where we're going to find our, our, our second miracle. Here's what John says happens next. Once more, he, Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Most of his readers have been like, oh, I knew Cana sound familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was where, that was where he pulled the first sign. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, the first sign took place in the middle of a joyful situation. It was a wedding celebration. Everybody's in high spirits. Good things are going on. And that was the, that was the context of the first sign. The second sign, that's in the middle of a heartbreaking occasion. And amazingly, Jesus wades into both of those situations equally. He didn't, he didn't lean towards the, the good times and only dwell in that. And he wasn't afraid of wading into hard, dark times. And so Jesus, he, here he is. And now there's two important things about this passage. If you really want to grasp the depth of what's going on here, there's two important things to know. The first thing is this, is that the official, the royal official, was based in Capernaum, which if you were to walk at a pretty um, determined pace, it would take about eight hours to walk from Capernaum to Canaan. It, it would take about eight hours. Now, it, he was a royal official, so I'm guessing he had a horse or a chariot of some type. And so he, he, he rode that in. Um, and so that would probably have taken between two and three hours. Because even though he had a horse, not everybody did, and he had a, traveled with an entourage. The second thing is this, is that he, he was a royal official, which means he was probably a Jewish aristocrat, right? Which means he was wealthy. And so he was probably, because of this, because of the category that he fell into, there, there was a real good chance that he was a Sadducee. Now, there were two groups, uh, two important groups within the culture in Israel when it came to their, their religion. There, there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were very religious. They kept the law meticulously. I mean, like every bit of the law. Um, they believed that God was involved with the intimate details of life, right? And they believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees, they, they kind of leaned on the more... Um, uh, intellectual and deterministic end of the spectrum. 
And they believed that we were here for the pleasure of God and that everything was determined, that every aspect of your life was set. And so there was no reason to petition God for things because what was going to happen was going to happen. But today, as this member of this this class, of um, of this group, the Sadducees, um, all of that gets brushed aside. And it isn't amazing how sometimes you can have ideas about how things work and ideas about how you'll do things. And then once you get into a situation, all the ideas go away. For, for example, for example, everybody I know, before they had children, uttered a sentence after they watched someone else's children Something to the effect of, well, when I have kids, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be different. I'm going to do it different. They're not going to do it. And every one of those parents, <laughs> once they've become parents, <laughs> look back and they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Parents, can I get an amen? Right? Oh, yeah. I was going to feed them all the homemade organic stuff. And I was going to, you know, and now here we are. You're just a little bit down the road and it's puffs and fruit chews and you're just whatever keeps them quiet, you know. You've got ideas and you have these constructs and you have these, this is how it works. But when you find yourself in a situation, all of a sudden a lot of those ideas begin to disappear. And that's the situation that this man found himself from. It all gets brushed aside and it says this, John says this, he says, when the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. This was such an important thing. He did not send his servants to do it, which he could have done. He made the choice, a difficult choice I would imagine. Because his son was near death. Had he left, it might have been the last time he ever saw his son alive. Because there was a good chance his son died while he was gone. But he decided to get to Jesus personally. Based on what? Stories. The only thing there was at that point really was stories. Because Jesus, this was early in his ministry. And he had done a couple things here and there. And word had begun to spread. And so he heard this story. And the verb tense that's used here in the, uh, in the Greek is that this wasn't a dignified request. This was, he was begging. As he came, he basically said, forget, forget status. Forget dignity. Forget position. Forget theology. Forget my worldview. My son is dying. Please help. Please help. And man, some of you have been there in life. Some of you have been in that position. Some of you have prayed prayers of desperation. Of I don't care about any other thing. I don't care what I look like right now. None of it. It doesn't matter. God, I need you to come through in this moment. And what Jesus says next, when you just read it straight in our English text, seems so insensitive but it's really only because of the way that, that it had to be translated into English. Jesus says something, not just, to, not just to the nobleman that is requesting this of Jesus, but to the entire entourage that came with him. To all of the group of people that at this point had begun to gather everywhere that Jesus went. 
He says something to them. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now that sounds offensive in our English language because you don't usually use a phrase like you people without being like you people, right? You know what I mean? It gives that. But what Jesus was saying was this. It sounds like an indictment, but it isn't. He was just saying something that was true, right? That it's like, it, it, it takes seeing something for you to base your belief on. It takes that action. And, and the claims that Jesus would make were outrageous. And as his ministry went on, they just kind of seemed to get more and more outrageous. So, so why would anybody take this guy who's saying all these outrageous things, bordering on the line of blasphemy, why would they take him serious? And so Jesus said, yeah, I need to give you reason. And so he gave these signs. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, he's saying, I know that I'm above you in this society, but at this moment, you are high above me because you can do what I cannot. And I imagine, I imagine those who had traveled with him and had seen him and known him as a nobleman might have been kind of embarrassed for him in this moment that he had become so small and so weak to have to beg. But what's interesting is that he is so confident that if Jesus came, his son would be okay. And why did he think this? Stories. Now in his mind, there was only two options. There was Jesus comes with me and my son is okay, or Jesus doesn't and my son dies. But I imagine Jesus kind of smiles because he knows there's a third option. Like you can't ever just give Jesus like a binary two choice option because you know, he'll be like, no, no, no. There's a third, there's a third. So he does that and Jesus asks him to do something that in essence, Jesus has asked everyone to do from that moment on for the last 2,000 years. Jesus asked this nobleman to trust him based on the testimonies of other people. And he asked him to trust his son's life to him based on those stories that were told. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. Can you imagine can you imagine if you had spent all of that time and effort to get to this person and you, you shrink yourself and throw yourself down in front of this person and beg and beg and beg? And in your mind, the only chance is for him to come and save your son. And he looks at you and he just says, go, go. I mean, I can't imagine. I, I, I've got, I imagine, I imagine that he was probably thinking, um, Jesus, if I just go and I show back up at my house without you, there are going to be two deaths in my family. My son will die and then my wife will kill me. Like that's probably going through his mind. There's no way I can show back up without Jesus. No way. And I can only imagine what was going through his head. I, I, I would even guess there was a moment within there that he kind of looks at his bodyguards and contemplates, do I take Jesus by force? <laughs> like, I, I, got the, I got the men. I can do it. 
Should I just stick him on my chariot and take him back? I imagine that something like that had to go through his mind. Who knows? But I do know this. This moment that this guy is experiencing, this moment is where so many of us live on a regular basis. This is our life. And this is why this is so brilliant. Because these things that Jesus does, they aren't just random acts of kindness. And they aren't just showing off for showing off's sake. Right? This is Jesus illuminating the path that we have walked as people for 2,000 years since he's been here. This moment. Because essentially, the story of our life is reduced to a single day and stuck within this story and this interaction. Because we are asked to take Jesus at his word based on the words of other people. Based on the testimonies of people like John, who wrote these stories, of Peter, who wrote these things. We are asked to do this. We're asked to trust our lives. We're asked to trust our futures, our finances, our children, everything about us. We are asked to trust Jesus based on the words of the people who knew him and had seen him. And we are to go about our day with our unanswered prayers, confident that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And as I've said earlier, we've seen people who have done this. People who, even though their prayers were not being unanswered, even though they had burdens that were not being lifted, sicknesses that wouldn't be healed, financial situations that would not turn around, spouses who would not come home, kids who wouldn't come home, parents who acted like children and the kids were forced to take care of them and clean up their messes. Yet there is a peace and a confidence within all of that that they know, despite my prayers not being answered, Jesus is who he claimed to be. And it's intimidating but it's so inspiring. And for those of you who follow Jesus and continue to be faithful in the midst of those unanswered prayers, who continue to be faithful when your prayers feel like they've been reduced to just meaningless words coming out of your mouth that are bouncing off the ceiling and not having any effect on anything, when you're in those moments and you're continuing, it's like, it's not working, it's not working, but I believe in Jesus is who he said he is. Do you know who is watching you in those moments of your life? No, you've got no idea who's watching you. Do you know what God is doing in the lives of the people around you because of your faithfulness despite your circumstances? No, you've got no idea. Do you know who is a day or a month or a year away from committing themselves to Christ because of your actions in these moments when your circumstances are so clearly bad to everyone around you, but you do not waver in your confidence of who Jesus is? No, you've got no idea. And our life in these moments is condensed to this day. And so this royal official is stunned is stunned. He's saying, oh, are you coming with me or are you not? And Jesus says, no, you're going home without me. But don't worry. 
don't worry. And he, the guy, he kind of ex- exhales. And I can imagine he's just got to make this decision, which is a decision that people have been making for 2,000 years. He decides to believe Jesus and to act as if what Jesus said was true, even though at that point he had no evidence to prove it. The text says this, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. He believed, and then this is the important part, this is the important part. He believed, and then he behaved as if what Jesus said could be trusted. Could you imagine? Could you imagine walking away from the only person that could heal your dying child? But he walked away from him because he decided to trust him. And he walked home by faith, not by sight. And this is the story of so many people. John keeps going. He says, while he was still on the way, that is the nobleman, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And I can imagine that a chill ran down this guy's spine and tears probably began to fill his eyes because then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Your son will live. And I can only imagine the excitement when he realizes what happened, that he kind of gives the horse a kick and is like, let's get there, let's get there, let's get there, right? as fast as possible. And then here he is, he walks in and his wife looks at him. Something miraculous has happened. And as she's looking at him, she sees no shock on his face to that statement because he was fully aware of what Jesus had done. And beyond that, he was fully aware of who Jesus was. And she might've looked at him and was like, well, where's the rabbi? And he tells his story. You're not gonna believe this. Little did he know that he was a part of the first wireless transaction in all of mankind. (laughs) That there did not have to be a physical connection that Jesus, through magic Wi-Fi signals, sent his healing. (laughs) He had none of those thoughts. Those are the stupid things I think when I read this. And he tells the story. And John says, so he and his whole household believed, to which I think, well, of course they did. Of course they did, because seeing is believing, even if you have to wait to see, even if it's not immediate. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, a minute ago, I don't know how many of you caught it, but a minute ago, I used a really churchy phrase. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard it, processed it, it went by, by you didn't even notice, but but here, here's, here's what they didn't say around this phrase growing up. And the phrase I, I said was, he walked by faith and not by sight. <laughs> so all of you with the church background are like, yeah, we're in a, yeah. Um, that's a weird sentence to people who didn't grow up in the church. But he, here's what it is. Walking by faith is not walking by hope or wishful thinking. 
That's what so many people think it is, but, but it's not. Walking by faith is living your life every day as if Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's walking by faith, as if what Jesus said was true. Living your life accordingly. Living your life as if you believed God is your heavenly father. To walk by faith is to believe that your sin is really forgiven. That God isn't, that God isn't holding it against you. That you don't have to confess it over and over and over and over and over again. You don't have to pay God back. God is not looking to be paid back. This was the significance of the death of Christ. And life, live life as if, and this may be the hardest, this may be the hardest one to grasp for you. But walking by faith is living life as if you are really unconditionally loved and accepted. That's a big one for some of us. That's a big one. But listen, the reason that Christianity changed the world is not because everybody got their prayers answered. It's not because everybody got what they wanted. What changed the world was this. Jesus, as he's getting ready to leave his disciples, he's like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go away. And Peter, of course, butted in and was like, hey, can I go with you? Jesus is like, no, but listen to what I got to say here. I'm going away. But by this, the whole world will believe. Well, what's this? What's this? What's the magic? What's the magic? Jesus, tell us what it is. He says, by this, the way that you treat one another. And the worst things are for you. The more dire your circumstances, the brighter your light will shine. And Jesus probably looked at them and I, I, don't, I don't know if he said something like this and they didn't write it down or if there may be a feeling ad, but he probably thought, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to always answer your prayers. I'm sorry, things are not always going to go your way. Things are not going to go the way that you want them to but you are still to love as I have loved. Listen, that singular thing is what changed the world. And loving as Jesus loved is what changes a marriage or changes a city or changes an entire culture. And to walk by faith is to live with the confidence that God is who he claims to be revealed by the person of Jesus. <coughs> One day, Philip, one of Jesus' followers, he, he got so frustrated with Jesus' teachings and kind of the crypticness of some of it. And, you know, he didn't understand how the pieces were going together. And he kind of just interrupts Jesus in the middle of his, one of his teachings. And he's like, okay, 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 okay. Look, all of this, Jesus, that you're saying is over my head. I don't get it. I'm not grasping it. Can we just cut to the chase? Can you please just show us the Father? Just show us God. And Jesus looks at him, he says, um, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
If you want to know what God is like, look at me. The way that I respond, the way that I interact with people, the way that I treat people, the value system that I place on people. If you want to see God, look at me. Pay attention to me. And it is living and walking by faith that causes the people around you to pause and to wonder. And listen, it has been this way since the beginning. And after the resurrection, Jesus is talking to his guys and he says, look, you have believed because you have seen me. And then he says this, and what he says next is about you and it's about me. And this should excite us. He says, look, you guys believe because of what you have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe. Blessed are those who have not seen. That's you, that's me. We haven't seen the things that decide. We didn't see Jesus. We weren't firsthand witnesses to these things. But blessed are those who have not seen, but still believe. These signs, this was something far bigger than a nice gesture for the royal servant and his son. It was Jesus knowing where we live, knowing what we would face, that we had to face the same decision that the official faced. Do I act like I believe Jesus is who he says he is, even though I may not have seen the proof? Am I going to trust and have faith even when my circumstances give me no reason? This was the point of Jesus' second sign in the Gospel of John. Will you, in your circumstances, behave as if Jesus is who he claimed to be? Because that is the very definition of walking by faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, there, Lord, this, this is, there, there's, <laughs> this is inspiring as a story, I think, I hope. Because Lord, some of us are in or have been in some circumstances that have been really dire. And God, our prayers were not answered in a way that which we could say, I have seen, therefore I believe. And God, it is in these moments where it is so easy for me to stand here with a microphone and say, all you gotta do is walk by faith. But in those moments, it is so difficult to be able to lift our head from our circumstances and see the greater picture, the bigger arc of who you are and what you've done in the world and in the lives of others outside of our current circumstance and still be able to act accordingly to the idea of we believe, Jesus, you are who you said you were. But Jesus, it is these moments in which we have the greatest influence on the people around us. Lord, for those who may be in the middle of one of these difficult, dark situations, give them strength. Lord, give them strength. Help them to face the next day. Lord, let them lay down their head on the pillow at night 
and not be able to explain how they made it through the day, but somehow through the grace of God, they had the strength to do it. Lord, I pray grace and mercy for people in these dark situations. But Lord, they are uniquely positioned to be a light to draw people unto you. May we all make the decision that the nobleman made that day to even though we did not have the evidence to stand up and to proceed as though Jesus was who he claimed to be. Lord, I thank you for your word, for your encouragement, for your direction, and for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for being out. Uh, Look forward to next week as we continue talking about the miracles of Jesus. It's a beautiful day.